Welcome to The Good Mood Show with Matt O'Neill. This is the show to help you navigate the challenging moods we all experience as human beings and where you will learn the best strategies to feel the good moods and good vibes we all love to feel. Because when you feel like your best self, you are your best self. This is The Good Mood Show. Now, here's your host, Matt O'Neill. Welcome to The Good Mood Show. I'm your host, Matt O'Neill. And today we have just a phenomenal show. We're inviting Dr. Loretta Bruning to The Good Mood Show. Loretta, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. So today we're discussing Loretta's groundbreaking book, Habits of a Happy Brain. Loretta is Professor Emerita of Management at California State University. As a teacher and a mom, she was not convinced by prevailing theories of human motivation. And then she learned about the brain chemistry of animals. And all of a sudden, everything made sense. As Loretta explains in her book and what you're going to learn today is that there are chemicals that make us feel good. And they were inherited from our earlier mammals. Those chemicals are dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. What you're going to learn in today's show is what those chemicals are, why our brain releases them, and then we're going to teach you new habits on how you can rewire your brain to feel good more of the time with these chemicals. So Loretta, I'm very excited about this. And if you love being in good moods as much as we do, make sure you hit subscribe on the show so you can get a good mood every week. So Loretta, in your book, you invite us to meet our inner mammal. Why is understanding our inner mammal a key to being in good moods? Sure. Well, the chemicals that make us feel good are controlled by a part of the brain that's the same in all animals. So you can imagine that when you're doing something that an animal could do, you're using that part of the brain. And that's really all the time because animals breathe and they interact with others and they seek resources to survive. So we're using our mammal brain all the time. It's the structures that people have often heard about, like the amygdala and hippocampus. And what's important is not individual bits and parts, but the fact that all together they have a job. And that job is not for you to just sit around and feel good from doing nothing, but those happy chemicals are released when you take action to meet a survival need. That's the job they do in animals. So that's what makes us feel good. And this is not at all what you hear about elsewhere. Yeah, I've I've thought about survival so many times. And I've written about how it's really this need to survive that creates our bad moods. And a lot of time we're, you know, I'll find myself like wanting to get defensive and argue with somebody and then maybe even fight back. And I'm, and I can just notice this, this competitiveness. And I'm saying, okay, this is me wanting to survive right now. And, you know, you talk a little bit about how there's also unhappy chemicals. Can you talk a little bit about these unhappy chemicals? Sure. Well, you've asked such a huge question. So first, our unhappy chemicals are there to warn us 
when there's a threat or obstacle to meeting a survival need. So in the modern world, like let's say you decide that you've got to have a pizza and then you call that number and the line is busy or something. Well, that's obviously not a threat to your survival. But in that moment, what happened is you connected the pizza to feeling good at some moment in your past when you were feeling hurt. And these little hurts our mammal brain equates them with survival threats because in the state of nature, social isolation is a threat. And also, if I imagine myself getting a banana, like I'm a starving monkey and I want the banana, and if there's a bigger monkey in the way of that banana, then that's a survival threat to me. So we've inherited a brain that has these big responses when we see obstacles to meeting a survival need. And then neurons connect whenever your unhappy chemicals flow, and that wires you to turn it on even faster the next time you see something that was an obstacle in your past. And then in addition to all of that, there's the subject of not just obstacles, but disappointment and not just threats, but the moment that your happy chemicals dip, that feels like a threat. So we could go into all these things. Yeah. And for me, my wife will not let me call the cable company. She won't let me call the internet company. She knows that they frustrate me. And I, yes. I don't know what it is about that particular answering service, but I am not allowed to handle it anymore. That's so funny. So my husband gets upset about a lot of things and I, I don't tell him he's not allowed to do it because I'm happy if he's going to do it. But then if he wants to vent at me, I, I cut it short. <laughs> but what I think is interesting is that he doesn't really know he's venting. <laughs> Uh, uh, and um, so when we feel frustrated, we're just activating a pathway built from past experience. Now, powerlessness is a real survival threat. So mm. we all have our ways of dealing with frustrations, but then we all have times when we sort of give up and it's like, I tried everything. There's nothing I can do. And that's powerlessness. So when you're talking to someone on voicemail or for me, it's like filling out a form on the internet. And when I get frustrated is I think, oh, this will take five minutes. And then 15 minutes later, I can't get it to work. And then I get upset. And then I tell myself, well, I really created the upset with my assumption that it would take five minutes, you know? Yeah. And then the minute I think of a solution, like I'm going to do this or this or this, whatever it is, I feel better the instant I think of a solution mm. because my solution relieves my powerlessness and powerlessness is a survival threat. And so as soon as I feel my own power, now my solution may be wrong, but the minute it's wrong, I come up with another solution. So then I could feel good all the time. That is, I'm so glad you said that. Just, just the other day, I was having a meeting with my marketing team and uh, th there's been some challenges in the real estate industry. And that's the industry that uh, my company is in. And um, two months ago, things were not super happy here at the office. And for two months, we've been coming up with so many solutions and reinventing the way we do business. And every single person in the company has, has been tasked with rethinking the way that they serve clients and serve our agents. And um, 
my, my marketing manager just the other day said, it's crazy. Our situation has not improved at all. And yet it feels so amazing to work here right now compared to what it did two months ago. And I think you just described it so eloquently that as soon as we went from feeling powerless, which is how we felt, like we felt like things had happened to us, the government had had raised interest rates and that that was unfair and we're powerless to what they're doing. As soon as we went from that powerless position where we felt like we were on our heels to being on our toes and saying, well, what are we going to do about it? All of a sudden, even though externally nothing had changed, internally everything had changed and we feel amazing again. So let's talk about why this is. So dopamine is the chemical that's released when you feel like you're just about to meet a need. So if you imagine when a monkey wakes up in the morning, it's hungry and it has no refrigerator or supermarket and nobody feeds it. So it has to find food. So it looks around and when it sees something that it can eat and it can get Dopamine turns on and the good feeling motivates the monkey to take a step toward the banana. And then um, if it gets closer and then more dopamine motivates another step and another. When it finally gets just to the banana, it has a big dopamine surge because it's just about to meet a need. And then the dopamine stops because it has already done its job. So that's the other side of this coin is that sometimes when you have a great achievement, people may know, like if you make a big sale or something and afterward you feel bad because you were so focused on that goal and without a next goal to focus on, you don't feel good. Yeah, the Super Bowl letdown. Yes. So um, it's very useful to know how it works. And that's hard to do because I think in the modern world and especially in academic psychology, they try to make dopamine like some kind of spiritual thing and some kind of higher values because it sounds like evil and selfish to say, I just care about meeting my needs. But that's how our brain works. That's the core processor that we've inherited and we have to manage it. Hey, if you love to stay in good moods as much as I do, be sure to hit the subscribe button on the Good Mood Show podcast. That way we could get you a good mood every single week. And look, if you know someone else that could use a good mood, share the show with them. Send them a text message. Let them know about the Good Mood Show and let's brighten up the world. And let's get into it. So there are four happy chemicals and uh, dopamine being one of them and the one that I think gets the most press and the, the one that we talk about the most. Can you, in, in what this, the crux of this show is going to be understanding these four happy chemicals and then um, Loretta is gonna uh, take us through new habits where you actually control the release of these chemicals. So um, Dr. Bruning, would you mind just talking about these four chemicals and, and how they work right now so we can get that baseline understanding? Sure. So we did dopamine and just uh, if people are thinking, well, I don't feel that way. So the bottom line is whatever triggers your dopamine when you were young, neurons connected and build pathways that turn it on for you today. So uh, the famous example is in a book uh, by Marcel Proust about remembrance of things past. He walks into a bakery and he smells the cookies that were bought for him when he was young. So any 
your brain doesn't store this information intellectually and logically. It just links everything going on at that time. So if you had a great um, way of meeting your needs when you were young, anything linked to that makes you feel good today, even though you'd rather not, even though you're not consciously thinking that. Mm. So let's move on. Um, Oxytocin is the good feeling of social support. And this has been idealized in a way that I think is unhelpful. So we see images of animals in a herd and we like to think that they all support each other and they would lay down their life for each other. But that's not at all how it works. In the animal world, if I am following the herd all the time, the grass around me is going to be peed on by other animals and animals don't like that. So they would rather distance themselves. But when they get too isolated, then they start feeling scared because a predator will eat you in an instant if you get isolated. So it's that feeling that I'm too isolated. When I go back toward the herd, that stimulates my oxytocin. So it's called bonding in the modern world. But you know that in reality, we all like our alone time. And yet then... Um, uh, when you're too alone, you want to be with the herd and you look for ways to stimulate your oxytocin. But then when you're with the herd, you all have that too much togetherness feeling and then you want your alone time. So as frustrating as that sounds, I think that every animal is making that decision every minute of every day. As they walk around, they're like, well, should I go closer toward following the herd or should go? I go off on my own with my next step? And what about the step after that? So that's the challenge that we're all designed to go toward bonding that stimulates oxytocin or dopamine that stimulates my uh, blazing a new trail. And this is so interesting because I think for myself, sometimes I think, well, other people just like to be more social than I like to be because I really value my alone time. And I also find myself when I do go be social and I decided to, you know, take the risk and go out and and even though it took a lot of energy that I end up feeling great when I did it. And I, and I think that's just such a really interesting push and pull that you're talking about that we do, all of us have this desire to be alone sometimes. And then we all of us get this great feeling chemical released when we go bond. That's super cool. How about, how about serotonin? So um, serotonin, this is difficult, but um, serotonin makes you feel good when you see that you're in the one-up position. Mm. Now, no one wants to admit that they enjoy feeling the one-up position, but everyone, if they're wanting to take a time out, to be honest, can see that they feel good when that happens. And there's, again, thousands of ways to do it. So a simple example would be, let's say you and I are playing Scrabble and I get the extra point and I think I'm going to win the game. And I'm like, yes. So just, you know, when you're playing poker and you draw a card and you're like, so it's like, I'm going to win. So there's not no shame in that. It's a natural function because in the animal world, if you always see yourself in the position of weakness, you, you're never going to grab for the banana because the other guy uh, will bite you if they're stronger. So animals only get the banana when they 
reach for it because they perceive that they're in the position of strength. And serotonin is the good feeling that you're in the position of strength. So your brain is constantly comparing you to others. And when you say, I got it going on, then I get a little bit of serotonin, but it's quickly reabsorbed. So then I got to feel that way again. And you could see how so many people go around doing the opposite and saying, oh, everybody else is stronger than me. Nothing I do measures up. And then they deprive themselves of serotonin. So this is the confidence chemical. Yes. I love this chemical. We all do. And the irony is that it's not meant to flow all the time. Nobody has it all the time. And in the in the state of nature, you couldn't obsess over it because you were too busy trying to get food and water and firewood. But once you have a comfortable life, then social comparison gets fed with all that extra energy and, and then you drive yourself crazy over it. And this, and this makes me think too of momentum in a sports game. And this momentum is a feeling of confidence. So this is the, the team that was losing maybe by a lot even. And then they had the ball bounce their way. They got the big interception. They scored the defensive touchdown. And then all of a sudden they're saying, I think we got them on their heels. And they feel like they're in this one-up position. And you can see the momentum shift. And it's really just their whole team got this serotonin and the other team had some deprived serotonin. And that's that's the actual chemical reaction that's going on in this momentum. I see it in business too. You know, there's days when I don't feel confident and I feel like I'm on my heels like I had described. And then this feeling of, oh, we've got this figured out and we feel confident in what we're doing. Exactly, exactly. And um, many people think that other people just get it easily and somehow I'm deprived. And that thought loop isn't going to help you. So I always use the thought experiment. If you were a young person and you got a part in the school play and you got a lot of, of um, applause, then that felt so good. And you connected neurons that said, well, this is the way to go. And then maybe you wanted to be an actor and you got a little part and you were so happy. But then you thought, Oh, I'll, I can't be happy until I get a leading role. And you try and you try and finally you get a leading role. And then you think you'll be happy forever, but you're not because then you think, oh, I can't be happy until I win an award. And then finally you win an award. And then you're just worried because next year someone else is going to win the award. So how can you stay on top? So don't think about like other people have it easy. Nobody has it easy. This is how the mammal brain works. And if you accept it, then you can manage it. If you don't accept it, then you think other people are attacking you and putting you down and you just make yourself miserable. Wow. You just talked about so much right there. And it's this moving goalpost that is this forever moving horizon. We can never catch it when we're playing this game. And, uh, you know, my wife and I were just talking about Taylor Swift the other day, and she wrote this new album, which is great. Uh, you know, I love her music. And yet she's this multi-billionaire, one of like the most successful artists of all time, arguably the, the number one artist of all time. And her songs are about how hard it is to be her. And, you know, I think that's not a, a, <laughs> extremely relatable 
because of how successful she is. And yet you've just described that it doesn't matter how much external success, it's the internal chemical release. And so I'm excited to get into how we can rewire this. I know we have endorphin as well as the fourth chemical to talk about. And and I want to get into how we can make it better for ourselves. Great. So endorphin, sorry, quickly. Um, Endorphin is the same chemical as opioid. The word means endogenous morphine. And it's not designed to flow all the time. It's only released when you're in real physical pain because you've seen animals that are attacked and their flesh is ripped open and they can still run to save their lives. So endorphin masks pain for 15 minutes so that you can take action to survive. And after that, the endorphin stops so you can protect your injuries. And you've probably had the experience if you slip and fall and people say, are you okay? And you say, yeah, I'm fine. And then 15 minutes later, you realize that you're injured. So that's endorphin doing its job. And we are not designed to injure ourselves to get the good feeling. And so that's why I just say that we're meant to seek the others. But we're not meant to seek endorphin, but just we could spend more time on the others, but just briefly, and you get a little bit of endorphin from laughing because it activates deep inner muscles that don't get used much. So you can make time in your life for laughing. Oh, I love laughing. That That's perfect. There's actually a, uh, there was a sensation that went on a while ago called laughing yoga. And it was just, you just laugh. Mm. You, you belly laugh and you belly laugh and you belly laugh. And, uh, and that's a good way to get endorphin. You know, we, you hear about endorphin too with long distance runners and they say they get that runner's high. Do you think that's the same thing? Yes and no. Um, that you get it if you run to the point of pain and on a daily run, you may not get it. They don't get it every day. They get it when they run to the point of pain, but there's grown up this cult which suggests that running to the point of pain is the way to be happy. And I think that's so misguided because if you have to run to the point of pain all the time, you're going to do long-term injury. Plus, you're not going to get your dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. Now, many athletes get their other happy chemicals through running because they get the bonding, they get the pride, and they get the approaching of of um, goals. But I want people to know that there are thousands of other ways to get it so you don't have to get it by exercising to the point of injury. I'm so glad you said that. So we'll, we, we'll just laugh our way to endorphin. And, yes. And, and let's get into some, you know these three other really important chemicals. What's, what's the way that we can create new dopamine habits? Sure. It's not simple thing in the sense of, again, people are talking about the habit of, you know, how to get yourself to exercise or eat salad. So everyone has already heard about that enough. So let's just talk about how to get yourself to take action to meet a need. So let's, let's think of an example that there's some task in your life that you really hate to do. Oh, I'll give you a simple example. So I open my closet door and I look at one thing And that thing gives me a bad memory because I remember that I bought it 10 years ago and I never used it. Then I look at another thing and that gives me a bad memory because I can't use that until this or this or this. And 
I can't make any decisions. And then I just get frustrated. Now I'm full of bad memories. So this is sort of the iconic example of whatever it is in that thing in your life that you wish you were doing, but you're not doing. The dopamine perspective is to set a goal and achieve it. And then you feel good about achieving it. So if I want to clean up that mess in my life, I'm let's say I decide that I'm going to spend 10 minutes a day. And after I'm done, I'm going to have a cookie. So I'm going to set an alarm for 10 minutes. I'm going to spend that 10 minutes. And then afterwards, I'm going to have a cookie. Now, you can adjust this. I know there are all the anti-cookie people. And you could certainly do it I'm without not, a cookie. I'm not one of them. I am. Pro, let's just say I'm pro cookie. <laughs> so, um, so on the simplest level, I'm using this as an example for something bigger than a closet that you're really, really afraid of doing. And so, you need to get your get, have the cookie after to get yourself to start, and then the good feeling of the cookie gets linked to the feeling of taking action toward this goal. And you do this every day and it builds a pathway. You get the good feeling of like, if I've divided this difficult challenge into 10 smaller parts, then I know that in 10 days, I will have solved this difficult challenge. Each day I can feel myself moving closer. So I'm stimulating dopamine in all these different ways, reaching a goal in a small way, reaching a bigger goal and having a reward in the short run are all ways that I then activate dopamine, which builds a dopamine pathway. So then in the future, I don't need this whole reward structure because I know that I'm going to feel good when I go and tackle that particular project. That makes so much sense. Yeah, I was just talking with the real estate agents that work here at the company about different ways they could make reaching out to new people to grow their business enjoyable. And one of the people in our company said, you know, I love coffee. I'm going to put an empty coffee cup on my desk. And so when I come in, that empty coffee cup is going to tell me that I get to have coffee if I reach out to five new people. Exactly. Yes. His suggestion was he would deprive himself of the coffee until he reached out to five new people. And I suggested that he enjoy the coffee as he's reaching out to five new people so that he's linking the positive experience with the experience of the, of the thing that's actually helping his business at the same time. And I said, I don't think this should be like, I don't think this should be something you don't enjoy reaching out to new people. I think if you could link the enjoyment of the activity of coffee with the enjoyment of achieving your goals at the same time, you're going to get more results. So that kind of sounds like what you're saying here too. Yeah. And it's very individual. One person might want to have the coffee after and one during uh, because often people will say, well, then I'd be just drinking coffee every minute of every day if I needed that to get myself to do stuff. So Mm. the bottom line for that is, We give ourselves a variety of rewards because variety stimulates dopamine. So if you're just having coffee all day, I have coffee every other day, one small one, because then it's like I really notice it and I really like it feels more rewarding. But I have to say I drink tea all the time. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) I went off of coffee for three months. 
And I'm a huge coffee fan. And I did replace it with tea successfully. And I came back. I just love that coffee so much. It's so good. And I, I like the way you've done it every other day. That way you're still getting the enjoyment of it. But man, I love a good cup of coffee every morning. Yeah. So it's very individual. But the bottom line is we can't have coffee all day, every day. We can't have pizza or wine all day, every day. We have to give ourselves a variety of rewards. And, you know, maybe some people might say, well, we should enjoy the intrinsic value of it. And well, there are things in your life that you enjoy the intrinsic value of it. But usually that's because they got connected to your dopamine at some time in your past. But then if you just repeat those same activities all the time, they sort of, they lose their spark. So we have to keep introducing ourselves to new things. And it's hard. It doesn't feel fun at first if you don't anticipate the reward. So that's why we create a structure that combines other rewards to get ourselves to put new things on the agenda. I love it. Yeah. And there is, there is this reward of accomplishment when I've got that little thing that I, that's nagging, you know, the, the toothpaste that's on the mirror and I see it and I say, oh, that should be cleaned. And then I see it again. And for me, I want to just clean the toothpaste. And as soon as I do, then it, it like all of a sudden now I'm like cleaning up the whole bathroom and I'm cleaning up Then I'm I like the whole house is clean and I feel so good just checking all these things off. Yes, exactly. And I have to admit that sometimes when you tackle a bigger, more distant goal, you it takes like, whoa, it takes a week or a month or six months before it feels rewarding. And all that time, you're like, oh, did I waste my effort? Am I going to lose? And so we don't want to just focus on the toothpaste and not take on the bigger challenges. So that's why it's so important and useful to understand your personal reward system so that you can take on, like maybe I'm, I'm going to spend half a day, half an hour a day on some huge project where the rewards are very distant and then have more short-term rewards in my life so that I can have a good feeling on a daily basis while also tackling new challenges that will make me happy in the future. I love it. Let's talk about oxytocin. Good. So what's hard about oxytocin and what I was explaining before is we have expectations of others. So oxytocin is the anticipation of social support. So it's like sort of like I buy you a beer and then I think next week you'll do something nice for me. If you don't do something nice to, for me next week, then I'm upset because I made this bargain in my head that you would do that because I bought you the beer. So we have to notice our oxytocin thinking in order to manage it. The uncomfortable part is that we can't control others. So first we have, have to have the self-acceptance to say, I want support from others because it's natural and healthy to want it and to seek it, but I can't guarantee it and I can't have it every minute of every day because I'm not a newborn baby. <laughs> and even though we're born with that urge for support every minute, that we don't actually need it to survive. So if I waste a lot of effort getting indignant with other people for not supporting me enough, that's really a, a misinterpretation of this whole oxytocin thing that I'm hearing a lot of. So a healthier way to look at it is, 
if I build a bridge toward you, then someday you might build the other side of the bridge toward me. But then tomorrow I'm going to go on and build a bri- my side of the bridge toward someone else. And the next day I'll build my side of the bridge toward someone else. So I'm doing this without the anticipation of immediate reward. And I'm doing it also without like stalking you and stalking your bridge every single day. (laughs) So, and then a year from now, one person might cross the bridge one day, another person might cross the bridge another day. So I'll have all of these nice oxytocin moments in my life because I built all those bridges. I love that. Yeah, simple thing that I live by is always letting people into traffic. Yeah. I love to be courteous on the road and it's a, it's so small and it's so simple. And, uh, you know, and and of course, sometimes I'm letting someone into traffic and I might, I may even be a little bit hurried or rushed myself and I let them in and then they don't wave. And I'm thinking, oh, I was expecting a wave for that nice thing I just did. (laughs) But most of the time when I'm courteous on the road, it's like, because this is a daily thing that I'm in my car, I just feel good. I'm building all these little bridges. And I think that also helps me smile at the strangers on the street and say hi to people as I walk in and, and just do these kind oxytocin type things at all times. Uh, It's kind of like a lifestyle. Sure. So what's so important is that you're you're expecting reciprocity in the long run, but you're not expecting it that instant. Because if you expect it that instant, then you get disappointed, then you get bitter. And we all know so many bitter people. <laughs> Sometimes even I have to say, if I wave to someone, I think, what you know, my my eyesight, it's often hard to see through the other person's window. I think maybe they can't see, maybe they think I gave them the finger because they misunderstood or something, you know. So you could project your drama onto other people. So it's important to know that we have these things called mirror neurons where we mirror what we see and feel from others, including like we project our feelings onto them and then we mirror it. So if you're kind to others, then you anticipate other people being kind to you. And that's creating a more comfortable world for yourself. Yeah. And one other thing that I do with this one is compassion when someone's unkind to me. And I, and so for me, I'll lean on karma on this one, that it's a kindness of me to be super compassionate and understanding when someone's being very rude or unkind or unsupportive towards me. And that in the long run, there will be some type of a karmic force that on a day when I'm not my best, and maybe I said something mean or rude, that then that that person might have compassion on me, even if it's a totally different person. And, And, you know, and I, and that's exactly. that's a different view that maybe not this particular of course there's some people I'm very kind to who are never going to be kind to me and that's just because you said there's a lot of bitter people in the world there are and that person's not living very kindly with themselves but maybe if I'm showing them compassion on my worst day someone will show me compassion yes and it really creates a pathway in your brain you say i say to myself consciously that person is probably having a bad day. I'm going to let them cut. Let's say they cut you in the line. It's like, 
that's fine. They're probably having a bad day and really need it. And someday I might have a bad day and really need it. And there will be nice people around. And mm. and that builds a pathway that just helps me relax. And have fun. Yeah. So our last one is serotonin. How can we sure. rewire this one? Sure. So many people, of course, their first thought is, well, I can't think of myself in the one-up position because that would be rude and nasty and obnoxious. And also because I'm not in the one-up position. So it's hard like to sell it to yourself and believe it. But then on the other hand, you don't want to be in the one-down position all the time because that seems hopeless and unfair. So I focus on realistic expectations. And um, I know that everyone has heard the concept of personal best. So let's just start there. You know, people often talk about, well, I'm happy because I did my personal best, so I don't have to worry what other people are doing. So that's good. But we know that also people also drive themselves crazy because then you feel like your personal best has to be, you know, 5% better every day, and then you feel exhausted. So... <laughs> So you don't have to do that either, but you could find small things that help you feel good when you make those social comparisons and have a self, self-awareness and, and self-acceptance that you are going to make those social comparisons. And one thing that's central to all of this, we all know that we're mortal and we're not going to be here forever. And that's the big thing that uh, triggers a lot of distress in people, even though they're not consciously admitting that. So anytime you create something that you think will survive your legacy, that you take pride in, that's the best way to get serotonin, because then it's just about you and I'm creating something that will last. So I always use the example, if you're a carpenter and you make a good, strong chair, and that chair will last for hundreds of years after you're gone, and that gives you a sense of pride. So reputation, can that be something we build that lasts? Yes, that's a great question because it's also that example of like, I can't control my reputation. Mm. Um, but I am the moment that I have a good reputation that I can feel good about it. But then there will be moments when there will be somebody who says something bad about me and I have to not have my whole pride hinged on every single person liking me. Um, I always talk about um, find ways to put yourself up without putting others down. And so many people, you know, the shortcut of like, I'm good because they're a jerk. So they're constantly finding that other people are jerks and that's their way of feeling good. But then someday that, you know, speaking of karma, you know, that will probably catch up with you. So um, yeah, investing in your reputation is is one way, but Everyone should have more than one way so that you don't have a sense of um, survival. This, this conversation has been so important. And uh, I, after reading your book, and I highly recommend if, if Loretta's work has spoken to you like it did to me, get her book. Uh, it's phenomenal. She goes into each of these chemicals in much deeper ways than we could do on just this show. And if you know someone who could use this message, send them a text message, share this show with them, tell them about Loretta's work. And Loretta, if there are, people are going to want to know more from you, how could people reach out and learn more? 
Sure. I have everything at innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. I have lots of free resources and videos, blogs. I have a lot of books, including Status Games and Habits of a Happy Brain and the Science of Positivity. And I have a new course, innermammalinstitute.org slash slash course. It is so important and so needed. I just love the approach that you've taken on happiness. And as you've said, we all can have access to it once we understand it. Loretta, thank you for being here. Sure. Thanks so much for the great questions. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Good Mood Show with Matt O'Neill. For free resources, videos, and materials about getting into your best moods, head over to thegoodmoodshow.com. And remember, when you feel like your best self, you are your best self. See you next week. Same time, same place.